and welcome to another edition of the Campus Hunger Project podcast, where we examine the current issues college students are facing when it comes to food insecurity. I'm your host, Monica Sager. Today, we're talking with Max DeFeria, who is a recent graduate from Clark University and is now serving as a Bill Emerson National Hunger Fellow through the Congressional Hunger Center with the California Association of Food Banks. Prior to this position, Max has worked as a food source hotline counselor with Project Bread, as well as a SNAP outreach intern for the Worcester County Food Bank. Welcome, Max. Hi, thank you, Monica, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Of course, I'm excited to have you. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and why the issue of food insecurity is so important to you? As you said, um, my name is Max DeFeria. I use they, them pronouns. When I was growing up, my father was laid off following the 2008 recession. After that, uh, my family went from living paycheck to paycheck to dealing with threats of foreclosure on our home and just a general lack of food in our pantry. When I finally got to high school, it was sort of the first time I was introduced to the connection between injustice that lays at other intersections of the food system with my own experiences of food insecurity as a child. So that really inspired me to become more involved in food justice and more involved in the food movement overall to really promote access to food for everyone um, and to ensure that all people have the food that they need to survive. That's really awesome that you can take your own personal experience into what you do now. So with that, can you tell me a little bit about your current work at the California Association of Food Banks? Part of the work that I'm doing with CAFB um, is conducting research on COVID-19's impacts on the emergency food system in California. So what we're doing is we've done some descriptive statistical analysis of weekly survey responses from food banks regarding food procurement, distribution, demand, as well as personnel shortages that have been impacting their operations. In addition to that, we've also conducted interviews with several CAFB member food banks and state officials to discuss COVID's impacts on different public policy programs, um, as well as the emergency food systems overall operations um, and how they've had to carry out practices since the pandemic has started. Finally, we've also conducted an extensive literature review of news media and food bank reports um, to identify other less spoken about or less easily identified options around what food banks have been experiencing and what that entails for their operations um, now and going forward um, since we do know that food insecurity lags behind economic recovery and so what we are seeing right now of COVID's impacts will be long lasting um, and will continue for at least the next decade if not longer. So before we get into your findings then can you talk more about why COVID has had such a big effect on food insecurity? COVID has really emphasized and highlighted a lot of the issues that were already being discussed around food insecurity and food justice issues, um, but weren't necessarily at the foreground. So these could be issues around um, transportation, around food access, geographic distribution of food, but not only just that, but also the food itself. If you may recall, um, at the beginning of the pandemic in meat packaging plants had to be closed down because of COVID spreading. Um, And so that does have huge impacts on food supply overall and thus impacts grocery stores and retailers, which in turn does impact your emergency food system and what foods they're able to receive from those sites as donation. COVID has really had such an exacerbating effect on food insecurity and on our emergency food systems just because of the fact that it has really affected every single intersection 
of the emergency food system. No matter what we sort of try to do, unless we really take the time to make sure that we're taking all of the necessary precautions for COVID and we're practicing social distancing, there's really no way to stop the overwhelming impact that COVID has had. Um, and at this point, the best that we can do is to respond to it which is, you know, building up our emergency food system. It's giving money to our neighbors in need. It's making sure that people have access to the resources that they require in order to get the food and the other basic necessities to life. It sounds like we almost have to be playing catch up in that sense, where we're using the food pantries, we're using delivery services and community care and stuff like that. Obviously, food insecurity was an issue before COVID as well, so we weren't perfect before either. But do you think something more should have been in place or could have even been in place so that it wouldn't have been this drastic of an issue if a pandemic was to come? One example that comes to mind would be pandemic EBT. So pandemic EBT or PEBT as it's called was created for school age children. So that way anyone who was eligible for free or reduced lunch at school would be able to receive the equivalent amount of money on an EBT card for the amount of food that they would have received had they been in school for April and May. So in Massachusetts, which is where I was working on PEBT over last summer, I want to say in Massachusetts, it was about $350 per student for those two months of benefits. Um, and so that $350 for some families created an entire food budget that didn't exist or that program is really an example of the way that government can really be involved and extend their services to everyone. Um, and so there's definitely more that we could have been doing. Um, if we look at SNAP or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, you know, there are a lot of exclusions involved with SNAP. Um, for instance, immigrants are not allowed to receive SNAP without it being considered a public charge. College students do not have access to SNAP. Um, unless they meet certain exception requirements. Um, there are a lot of limitations around um, people with inability to work and their ability to receive uh, public nutrition programs. And so there's a lot of opportunities around these public nutrition programs that we can create to expand their access and ensure that all individuals who are experiencing food insecurity or hunger are able to access them and actually receive the necessary food to survive. So there's definitely way more we could have been doing before the pandemic started. Um, and now we really are playing catch up. Now what we need to be doing is focusing on how can we build up SNAP? How can we build up the successes of PEBT from the first time around? How can we build up all of these programs to really make sure that families are able to access them and use them? But also goes further to make these programs accessible all of the time, right? Like pandemic EBT was created specifically to address the pandemic. Why are we not making this a program for the summer to make sure that kids aren't experiencing food insecurity over the summer? We know that hunger spikes during those summer months because kids aren't in school. These are things that we've known and have known for several years. And unfortunately, people didn't want to listen before now. COVID has created the opportunity for us to really pivot our way of looking at emergency food systems and looking at food security and food issues um, to really be more about ensuring every person has the right to the food they need to survive. Now that people are starting to look at it though and certain programs are becoming in place, do you think that if there was to be another pandemic somewhere down the line, we would be more prepared? I hope so. I would very much like to imagine that 
we have taken the lessons learned from our first year almost of the pandemic and really be able to apply that knowledge in another circumstance. I think the openness of some federal government representatives to hear policy issues and to be more open to exploring opportunities around different ways of expanding and building up our public um, safety net programs presents a unique circumstance for us to really build on this momentum that's been gained over the past couple months and integrate that knowledge into our best practices moving forward. I think this does present a great learning opportunity and now is our time to demand that the individuals with the power do learn from it. This is our opportunity to really organize our communities around the knowledge gained and say this is what we know and this is how we need to be responding in this moment and in the years and months and in another pandemic-like disaster. And so I think this has come together to be the perfect amount of knowledge creation for that. And we just have to hope that it will actually follow through. <laughs> Going back to your research then, what have you found? So there are three major findings of our research. So first is that despite interventions, food insecurity in California has more than doubled with great racial and ethnic disparities. In California, food insecurity is currently at 25.3% in December of 2020, um, and that is more than double the amount in 2019. So in 2019, California food insecurity was at 9.9%. This is obviously a huge spike to 253 Specifically for Black, Latinx, or Hispanic, and multiracial or other identifying individuals, those food insecurity rates skyrocket to above 30%. So if we think about that in comparison to the state overall, there obviously is a huge need to address racial inequity as a root cause of hunger, um, which has been proven again and again by national and international anti-hunger organizations that it is a root cause. The second finding that we had was that the pandemic has really forced emergency food systems to innovate their operations. Prior to the pandemic, a lot of food banks would connect with and collaborate with partner agencies, which we would think of as food pantries um, that typically hand out the food to individuals in need. Whereas now, because of social distancing guidelines and the fact that frequently the food pantries are run by retired individuals um, or older individuals who are no longer safe being out in public because of COVID-19's potential impacts on their health, those partner agencies were forced to close. And so food banks themselves then had to switch their operations in order to ensure that everyone had access to the food that they needed by performing direct distribution. So that led to a lot of the headlines we were seeing nationally of hour-long lines to get food from food banks, of you know lines backed up to highways, things like that. This was because of that need to innovate and provide food in a socially distant, safe manner that ensured the safety of both the public and the frontline workers for the emergency food system. And then our third finding was that government programs for food, for personnel, and other types of support have addressed critical shortages in the emergency food system caused by the pandemic. But overall, the emergency food system cautions against any premature end of this government support. There are indications that hunger is once again on the rise, um, especially with the recent reinstatement of shelter in place and stay at home orders across you know, different states and other areas of the nation. So with that knowledge, many emergency food systems representatives cautioned against government ending any sort of uh, supports that they had been offering in the guise of vaccines are coming out. And so these 
forms of support won't be needed. Even with vaccine rollout, you know, we can see wherever we are um, that it's not perfect. And so it is going to be a while before things return to a sense of normalcy. Now you've mentioned food banks to governmental programs. Is there one solution to end food insecurity or do you think it's something that we need a bit of everything? That's a really great question. I think if we're looking to end hunger, um, which I think at the end of the day is what all of this work is really about, then what we really need to do is end barriers to food itself. Barriers can be anything. So I think it's a a combination of both. Unfortunately, in, in the circumstances and world that we're in, we are required to end incorporate some sort of charity-based organization in order to service the needs of our community members rather than just receiving all of that support from the government. But if we're really looking at solving the long-term issues here, it does require deep government involvement that provides food budgets to individuals in need that supports our community members who need access to food, whether that's, you know, by providing great public transportation, by ensuring affordable housing, There are so many different elements that are involved in a truly just food system that ending hunger requires the involvement of not just government sources and the use of charitable food, but requires us reimagining the systems all together um, to really see how can we create policy and create a, a world that is informed by the lived experiences of those with hunger. The only way to truly solve hunger is by turning to the people most affected by it and asking for their knowledge and wisdom and guidance. And so I think what we need to be doing now is turning to those folks and having them lead conversations on policy and having them lead these conversations of what needs to actually be done for a just food system. And so it's not just is government programs or our charitable food systems going to solve food insecurity, but I think it goes deeper than that to say how can we really end hunger by addressing its root causes of racism, classism, colonialism, and whatnot. And so I think that requires a complete reimagining or alternative idea making of the potential solutions to these issues that run rampant in the systems that we have currently. You've done a lot of advocacy work, Max, and it all seems really amazing, very influential as well. Do you have any tips based off of what you're doing right now as a fellow or your work at Project Bread or the Worcester County Food Bank for our audience as to either how they can get involved or even how just to start advocating and where to go from there? My very first recommendation um, to everyone is to get on their local food bank's newsletter list. Pretty much every food bank runs a weekly or monthly newsletter. If you want to know what's going on in the world of hunger for your local community, that's the best way to do it. They'll be tapped into exactly what's going on at the local scale and frequently will be able to provide specific advocacy opportunities or specific events that you would be able to tap into to really begin to advocate for a more just food world. Outside of that, I would say there's a lot of work and power that can be done around organizing. We as young people are so connected right now. We do have so much at just the tap of our fingers. So really using our technology to learn more. Education, especially around food systems issues, is so important because we don't talk about them. People don't realize that food injustice is an issue until you've explicitly told them that it is. In addition to that, I would say really just 
learning and engaging yourself with your local politics. So much food policy is made at a national level, but is very influenced by your local situations. Um, States, for example, have a lot of ability to influence who is eligible for SNAP at their individual level. And so if you want to become super involved with, for example, SNAP advocacy, there's an opportunity. You don't need to try to fly to DC to advocate for SNAP. You can do that in your apartment by calling your local mayor or calling, you know, your local state representative or senator and just saying, hey, I want to talk about SNAP eligibility in our state. So these are small things that don't necessarily seem to have a huge impact, but that one call that you make has such a long lasting impact on that individual person who picked up the call that they're going to continue talking about it with someone else in the office, with someone else in government who works in a different department or works in a different area. And so that's really how you begin these conversations of change, because unfortunately change doesn't happen overnight. Well, I think that leads me to my last question then for you, Max. Is there any final takeaways about food insecurity, food justice, advocacy in general that you'd like to leave with our audience today? Each of us individually have so much power to create change, whether on the individual interpersonal scale or on systems wide scale. And so I encourage everyone to really recognize what their capabilities and capacity is and to engage with the food system in that way. So if you have the ability to go out and buy someone who is on the street looking for food, a meal, do that. You have the ability to go and write a you know strongly worded letter to your representative about SNAP or WIC or PEBT, then do that. I think whatever's within your capacity, as long as you are trying to engage as much as possible within your capacity, to create change that that is the most amazing and powerful thing we can do as a collective. If we wanna see a hunger-free world, we should just work together to collaborate, to build it. We can do it. I truly do believe that. And so if we come together, we can make that a reality. Thank you so much, Max, for all of your words of encouragement and your research, especially around COVID and shining a light on what is happening in the world right now and how we can do better with food insecurity. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad I was able to be here. That's it for today. I'm Monica Sager. See you next week for our next episode of the Campus Hunger Project Podcast.